Welcome to episode 100 of the ASC podcast with John Gailey for April 3rd, 2020. Recording live from our studios in Spencerport, New York. We would like to thank our sponsors, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, Surgical Information Systems, Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions, BHG Funding, and Medicus IT. For more information about our sponsors, please visit our website. This is Susan Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Joining me from our studio in Spenceport, New York, is John Gailey, recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. And joining us remotely from Rochester, New York, Jenna Alvarez, Senior Nurse Consultant with AHS, and Judy D'Ambrosio, Director of Educational Services with AHS. And from Cape Cod, Massachusetts... <laughs> I know, he, though he's switching around the thing. Okay. From Cape Cod, Massachusetts, Lori Rodericks, Director of Clinical Services for AHS. From Atlanta, Georgia, <laughs> Zach Calaritis, Financial Consultant with AHS. And from West Palm Beach, Florida, Ann Geyer, Chief Nursing Officer with, S- with SIS. You totally threw me off with <laughs> doing the highlight pictures, and all of a sudden, yeah, there was my face. It's like a new toy. <laughs> so this is our 100th episode, like you this said. This is unbelievable. I can't believe we're at 100. And 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 I had, you know, when we when we started thinking about what we would do on some of our, you know, our uh, spotlight episodes, mm-hmm. trust me, this, wasn't this was not our idea. <laughs> Uh, at all, but I thought we would l- reminisce just a little bit. I think sometimes you just—I mean—we have to step back from everything that's going on and just kind of talk a little bit about, you know, what what it's been like over the last um, it's two and a half years now. But I also have to say it—it it seems like this has turned out to be such a great thing. It was almost fate that you started it yeah. because this has been so helpful in this time when we can't really visit our clients as right. much and when we're not out and about and people really need information. So well, it was I, actually good that you did that. And I remember, what was it, um, that one day we were sitting around and I said, you know, I think I can go live. And then we just did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I mean, we had never even thought about doing a live episode. None of us here have any experience in live mm-hmm. radio or anything like that. So I don't have to edit anymore. I, and then she doesn't <laughs> have to edit. And it, it really has been, I mean, actually, it's hard for me to imagine what it would be like going back mm-hmm. to the old days. But I just wanted to reminisce a little bit. So first of all, we recorded uh, the first episodes in our dining room. And uh, it, it, you know, all the equipment, we bought a, quite a bit of equipment, but uh, in the beginning, we didn't spend anywhere near the amount of money that we have now for all the equipment that we have in our studio. Um, and Judy uh, was our first co-host there. And I think I should point out that Judy and I, I actually met Judy uh, directing her in a play. I, I, I have a theater background. Judy has a theater background. We both have a little bit of uh, acting uh, experience, shall we say? <laughs> a little bit. Uh, for those of you who <laughs> didn't figure that out already, and uh, <laughs> and uh, so we decided that uh, we would do that. Unfortunately, just the the logistics of trying to record every week in the dining room and having Judy come over that it just didn't work out for for too long. I, I can't remember when we we switched that around. And at that time, my daughter Jenna uh, was still uh, was living with us um, temporarily, and she was our co-host for a while. Um, and then, uh, after a while that became wearing on her because she actually had work to do. And actually that doesn't sound good when I go on I to know. you, Sue. And I was sitting around the house. <laughs> Doing nothing. And nothing to do. <laughs> so we brought Sue on board. And, and something you need to understand about Sue is she's actually, uh, an introvert and she's 
somewhat shy. So the day she told Don't me that... Don't say shy. I'm yeah, an introvert. That's true. And, uh, and the <laughs> day that she told me that she wanted to do it is like, oh my God, what has happened? I, I remember it differently. Did I say I wanted to do it? <laughs> but um, I do enjoy it, actually. So... Um, and so then uh, Sue has really become our permanent uh, co-host, but uh, all of the, the people that you see here have uh, have joined us over, over time. And Anne, even though she uh, isn't with our company, she has uh, been interviewed. She's probably been the most interviewed of, uh, of all the people that we've had in guest spots. And uh, so, as I said, we recorded in our dining room for quite a while. And uh, then Sue kind of said, I'm getting tired of not being able to use the dining room table here. Um, so we, uh, we eventually moved out. The other problem we had is that, you know, we had at the time two dogs who kept interrupting us and we could hear their noise in the background. Um, so we, we, uh, eventually moved out of there. We bought some new equipment. That's when we started upgrading the equipment and we moved into a kind of a temporary space in the office. Uh, and then in this crowded room, Sue and I are, are huddled up next to each other doing these recordings. And the problem is when you're that close, we couldn't see each other when we were talking, mm-hmm. uh, which, which became problematic. But, but we, you know, we did a good year's worth of episodes on that and before we built the studio. And now what we have – and, and the funny thing is, uh, is that we had very inexpensive microphones. So if you listen to those beginning episodes compared to what we have now, uh, you'd notice a huge difference. Of course, when we're live, the, the quality of the recording is considerably different than when we record and edit them. Um, but uh, so, and then we converted the ground floor into a studio and a conference room. And then just about two weeks ago, we got rid of the conference room since nobody can meet anymore. Uh, and we turned that into the, uh, the the second studio, which is a green screen studio, video studio, which you're going to be seeing. And the main reason for doing that is so they can prepare for our virtual conferences, which are coming up. So we have a lot of exciting things going on. Uh, certainly we're, you know, uh, three times more popular than we were. We have three times uh, as many uh, listeners um, over since the last three weeks when we started going live. So thank you to all of our, our loyal listeners out there who, you know, support us. Uh, so I thought um, I was going to surprise Judy with a flashback to episode one. So this is an outtake from episode <laughs> one. Are you ready, Judy? I, I I bet you don't even remember this. <laughs> or you blocked it out. Here you is, blocked it out. <laughs> here's a little outtake from episode one. So now let's listen in on Nurse Nancy, who is in the middle of an unannounced CMS survey with Sam Surveyor. Well, hey, Sam Surveyor, what are you what are you writing so furiously about in your notebook there? I've never seen anybody write that quickly. Oh, oh, oh my God, or never that much. Plus, I've never met anyone with such an appropriate name. Well, I guess that's just fate. But getting back on topic, I just finished observing one of your procedures here, and I I don't think they performed a timeout. Did I miss something? Oh no, we do timeouts all the time here. I mean. Just last week, Dr. Persnickety put Scott the Scrub Tech into a timeout just for not genuflecting in his presence. What a guy. That's not quite what I mean. You know, you have to do a timeout before each case where everybody in the room stops doing everything and double checks to make sure that the procedure is ready. It's quite a list of things that you're supposed to look at. They should identify the patient's name, the date of birth, the procedure that's being performed, the side will be performed on, any allergies or anything else that you should know about the patient, and then verifying that you have the correct equipment and any implants or supplies that you might need. Oh, you can't be serious. Everyone in the room and that whole list? I mean, that's an awful lot of work for a very safe procedure. We almost never make mistakes here. Well, 
let me give you an example. The room I just left is all set up for a cataract surgery on the right eye. Okay, so what's wrong with that? Well, according to the medical record that I looked at, and actually direct observation of the patient on the table, you, you know, she's an 11-year-old girl there for a tonsillectomy. <laughs> oh, well, that can't possibly be right. I mean, for heaven's sakes, I am, um, um, well, well, you know, she's probably going to need cataract surgery down the line sometime anyway. <laughs> Nonetheless, I really recommend that you stop that procedure immediately. You know, it's just not going to end well. So in, in the beginning, uh, uh, Judy and I wrote little skits. For, I don't know, it was like the first 10 episodes or something like that. And then, then we kind of ran out of material. But but if you want to go back... We realized we were not good screenwriters. Yeah. <laughs> well, part of it is that most of our uh, most of our little outtakes there, most of our, uh, our, our scripts kind of... Uh, uh, were, uh, were not too favorable to doctors, and we, we felt that that probably was not fair to them uh, all the time. But, uh, but yeah, definitely, if you want to go back and have a little more humor, uh, go back and listen to those beginning episodes. So, or I, not. <laughs> or not. But I do want to thank uh, everybody. Uh, Alex, unfortunately, can't be uh, on today. He's taking care of my mother, his grandmother. Um, and uh, it's, uh, uh, it's just been a pleasure working with all of you over 100 episodes. This is, uh, I can't believe how far it's grown. I can't believe, uh, you know, again, how, how it's taken off and how uh, much uh, our audience uh, has commented about how valuable this is to them. And, and, of course, what it's done for our business. And let's face it, you know, one of the main reasons we did it is because we wanted to, to grow Ambitory Healthcare Strategies, also a sister company. And uh, this has done very well for that. But the main purpose here has always been to kind of get that information out there and to uh, to get um, you know some consistency, give something back to the industry. And I thank all of you on on today's uh, podcast for all the work that you've done to uh, to help us along those lines. So back to the real world right now. Um, Let's just mention how you uh, ask questions today. Um, there are three ways to do that. You can uh, go to your Podbean app if you're using Podbean to listen to us live, and you just type into the chat um, section there. You can email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com, or if you're watching us on YouTube, you can um, uh, uh, enter the comments in the comments section in YouTube. We have people monitoring all of those things. Uh, and sometimes if you just can't get a hold of that and you're one of our clients, just give us a phone call. Not Please don't call me or Sue, uh, but call somebody else and, uh, and we'll uh, go back. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll take that call and, and uh, have that question put on the air. So a lot of things have happened, and uh, we just got off a phone call. A lot of things going on in New York, of course, and we apologize to those of you, those listeners that are not in New York. Um, we know we talk about uh, New York a lot, but as we all know, this is really kind of the epicenter. By by far, ten times as many uh, people in New York are affected. Well, not uh, New Jersey is affected also, but a very large uh, contingent of people in our area are affected by this. And I think as uh, as things uh, happen here, uh, the changes will start appearing elsewhere. Um, so we just uh, came off a conversation with. <clears throat> A governmental consultant in New York, and she kind of said, uh, "Stand by, it's going to be a long weekend." And uh, she took all of our phone numbers and said, uh, "We'll be in touch." So I have a feeling that uh, uh, we we like to say TGIF, but yeah. I don't think it will be. It's going to be a big weekend. It's going to be a big weekend. Uh, and so, but let's start off with uh, one of the national programs right now: the Paycheck uh, uh, Protection Program, the PPP uh, program. Um, uh, starts today. So, uh, well, basically the application period begins today. Um, 
So uh, one of our friends' uh, companies, uh, lawyer firms, uh, Garfunkel, sorry, Garfunkel Wild sent out a, a morning uh, briefing, uh, basically uh, reminding everybody that applications should, are, uh, should be submitted to your lender as soon as possible since it is a first-come, first-serve uh, basis until the money runs out. So the faster you get your application in, the more likely you'll get a piece of that $349 million pie out there. Uh, the last day to apply for the uh, the PPP loan is June 30th, 2020. So you do have some time, but as we, we highly suspect that the funds just will not last until June 30th. So if you haven't already started working on this application, you should today. There is really almost no downside to this, really, unless, as we'll talk about in a minute, you happen to be one of those that might, might not be eligible for this. Uh, and to that end... Um, if you are, if your ambulatory surgery center is affiliated with a national company or a hospital, you may have uh, some restrictions as to your eligibility for a loan under the Paycheck Protection Program. SBA regulations state that for both uh, business loans like the the PPP and disaster loans, uh, an ASC must satisfy two criteria, and that is the size of the applicant alone without affiliates must not exceed the applicable size and standard, and the size of the applicant combined with its affiliates must not exceed uh, exceed the size standard designated for either the primary industry of the applicant alone or the primary industry of the applicant and its affiliates, whichever is higher. So if, you, if you're part of an organization that has over 500 employees, that's when this might kick in. Now, the ASC Association has been working with uh, uh, the, the administration to try to get this particular problem corrected because it does affect quite a number of surgery centers. Uh, so just be careful. A uh, good piece of advice here is that you should be consulting with a lawyer throughout this whole thing. Your lawyer is your best friend probably right now. Uh, and uh, ask, uh, ask them for assistance. And certainly if you are part of a larger group, it's really kind of mandatory that you do that. You should also consider a loan advance. So, so these loans, and I guess I don't have the notes on it. I'll do this by memory. Um, hang on. So uh, these loans are for uh, an extended period of time at a very low interest rate, like 1% interest rate. Uh, I think you can extend it out over 10 years. But the most important part of it is that you have the ability to uh, have part of the loan forgiven. And that amount would be equivalent of uh, 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 five, uh, I'm sorry, 10 weeks of, of uh, pay for your organization. So if you look back on what uh, the full pay for your uh, employees before they were furloughed uh, was, that that amount, m- minus anybody that earns over $100,000, uh, would be the eligible amount to to, uh, uh, to have abated or to have, uh, uh, what's the term, uh, forgiven. Um, so that basically would allow you to perhaps go for a good... Uh, uh, two months um, with uh, money provided by the government to help you keep your employees on staff. Now, the, the issue for this is, of course, if, if, you, if you have furloughed your employees, you have until June 30th to bring them back on board. And we're going to talk a little bit about what you can do with those employees if they come back on board and you still can't start operating uh, a little bit later in the episode. 
Also, you might want to consider a loan advance. They do provide an advance of up to $10,000 within three days of your application, the approval of your application. Um, you still have to go through the process listed that we've just discussed of applying for a loan. Uh, and this, uh, But this is meant to provide some immediate relief, as I said, up to $10,000. Uh, it will, unfortunately, take a few hours to complete. There are some things that you have to supply as supporting documentation. Uh, for more information on both of these things, please go to our website at ASCPodcast.com and we'll provide, there's a lot of information about how to go about this. The big takeaway here, though, is contact your bank. Most likely the banking relationship you have right now with your primary bank or a bank that you've already borrowed money from uh, will be an SBA vendor and uh, you can ask them to, uh, to assist you in this process and to provide the application, et cetera. Uh, if you are not going to use your primary bank and go to another lender, uh, please note you are going to have to go back to your uh, bank and, and inform them that you are, uh, if you have a loan, uh, that you are going out for an SBA loan. Uh, are there any questions about that? Anybody want to post any questions? So, again, I think everybody should be doing this just to kind of get yourself prepared to bring your staff back on board if you can. Um, to be prepared for whatever that next step is going to be. We're not quite sure what that next step is going to be. Um, you know, whether you're going to be reopening soon as an ambulatory surgery center, whether the hospital might be taking you over for a period of time, uh, whether you might be doing something other than ambulatory surgery for a period of time. Uh, but you want to be best as, as well prepared for that as possible. And, of course, we want to do right by our employees. So if we can bring them back on board, uh, that would be a good thing. Uh, seeing no questions... Uh, yet. Jenna, why don't you talk, uh, um, our friend Wendy Dixon out of uh, uh, upstate New York made us aware of some uh, issues or some uh, some issues with regard to endoscopic reprocessing. So thank you, Wendy. Jenna, will you go through uh, some of that? And I'll ask Lori and Ann perhaps to chime in if they have any uh, thoughts on this. Yeah, so Medivator sent out a uh, statement to their customers the other day um, regarding the endoscope processors. And basically they're saying um, you don't want to shut them down for any extended period of time because um, you don't want microbial contamination to develop. Um, and that can happen while it's not in clinical use. So instead they put out some guidance um, as to how to um, or what to do with it basically when it's not in clinical use. And that included replacing the water filters, performing um, a test reprocessing cycle without an endoscope once per uh, weekday, uh, performing one disinfection cycle every seven days, um, and replacing the water filters before initiating the first clinical reprocessing cycle. Um, they also, I we didn't get a chance to watch it today because it was while well, we had a state um, phone call, but they had a webinar today um, about, uh, you know, infection control issues in the endoscopy space during this COVID outbreak. Um, so I don't know if that's still available for people to watch afterwards if people weren't able to see it. Um, but if you do use Medvaders, I would, I would um, check that out. And we'll put a link um, on our uh, uh, morning update on Monday and, and push it out to our website also. Uh, there is already information on this on the, on the website. And then the other thing is because I know a number of my clients use Olympus. I went up to the Olympus um, site and they had an alert out um, basically reminding people to check the instructions for use for the um, OER pros um, and that if 
you're going to go more than 14 consecutive days um, without using it, that you should be storing it for long-term storage. And your instructions for use have a whole process listed um, for both um, putting it, you know, putting it into long-term storage and then also what to do when um, you're ready to start using it again. I, and I guess a point I want to make here also is that you should be, uh, thank you, Wendy, for bringing the, uh, our attention to this with regard to uh, endoscope, uh, at the endoscopes, but really all of your equipment, you need to be kind of thinking about um, what the ramifications of long-term unuse of that equipment. I can't think of anything offhand that would be an issue, but uh, certainly all of your equipment is going to need some type of maintenance. Lori and, and uh, Anne, do you have any observations or, or some thoughts on that? Um, John, the only thing that concerns me, oh, sorry, Lori, is <laughs> are people tracking all of this? I mean, with the shutdown, the people that I talk to are more concerned with paying their employees. And if they're not using this time to, to research all of the equipment they have and the repercussions, when they do start back up, they may not, or try to start back up, they may not be able to. And then you have the infection control issues, which, yeah. um, you know, if you start back up and you haven't done the recommended uh, maintenance during the shutdown, then there's a liability issue there. Yeah, and also uh, getting back to the um, the endoscopes, uh, your GI scopes, most of you probably have a policy in place that you might hang them for X number of days. Yeah. Remember, those days have come and have gone. Right. So you're going to need to be sure that you reprocess every single one of your scopes before you open because their shelf life is no longer um, adequate based on your, your policy. Um, so that's a, a big thing to consider. Um, you know, and if, if you, if for some reason you did have issues in your um, sterilization uh, supply closet, your instrument um, storage area with your ventilation and stuff, you may have to look at reprocessing every single one of your trays, every single one of your peel packs in the general um, surgical setting. Um, so that's something that is a huge time consuming thing. And, and we don't often think of it. And, and yes, uh, you know, we have a, a method now that it's not uh, time. It's, um, you know, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of, Ann? It, it's it's event, event related, right? Event related. But if you're not, if you're not storing it in the proper environment, that event has occurred. Um, it's not just that you're stacking them too high or whatnot. So there's a now, those are great points. Yeah, and remembering to to go back from that standpoint is having some way of monitoring what's going on in those rooms during that period of time that you're out exactly. too. Hopefully, you have some exactly. controls over that. Good and point. some centers only have the administrator in house. Yeah, she's the only one it's inside that. the center right now. And so, you know, who is doing all of this? Is you know, it's not like they don't have anything to do. So, and and some administrators don't necessarily have the clinical background that might be needed or. You know, they absolutely. Matt, yeah. Yeah. Um, and and actually, uh, believe it or not, I've heard, I've been told that some uh, of the organizations have actually furloughed the administrator or the nurse manager or both, uh, which <laughs> I think we recommended right from the very beginning. You really can't do that because uh, in a furlough, you can't even contact them other than to say, "Okay, come on back." 
Um, so you, you really, before you do that, so then they're say, not getting any of this information. That's exactly right. They're probably not even listening to our podcast. So, Oh, everybody's listening. <laughs> well, then that's something when, um, when you do reopen that you need to take into consideration. Right. So if you're going to reopen on, let's pick a number, May, May 12th, you're not doing cases on May 13th. That's right. You're not doing cases on May 12th because you have to ramp back up. That's right. Lori and Ann. Uh, um, sorry, we had yeah. a question on YouTube from Beth Hogan um, about the frequency of running the Medivators processor. And she says they had advised us once a week. It sounded like Jenna said once a day. So reading the, um, the product bulletin, it says perform once one self disinfection cycle every seven days. So that's the weekly but it says to perform a test reprocessing cycle without an endoscope once per weekday. And then um, at the bottom, it says, no, it is recommended to perform daily endoscope cycles to retain disinfection of the AER basin. So I think that's more of a recommendation, not necessarily a requirement, but I would check with your, um, you know, with your um, manufacturer with the manufacturer. And, and another point with that too, is you want to make sure that you're aware of what the dates are of your product that is in your machines to make sure that they are still um, valid when you come back up uh, because they have a shelf life as well. And we sometimes forget about that because more than likely we use it before it ever expires. So the expiration date is oftentimes, uh, you know, the last thought in our minds. Um, mm -hmm. So it's just another uh, thing to think about. And, and anything that has an expiration date on, uh, too. Uh, I mean, drugs are going to be another issue there, depending on how long we go. Uh, Lori and, uh, Ann, and Jenna, um, thinking about uh, sterilization, the equipment in the sterilizing room, and uh, and all the, the biological testing that has to be done there, are there any considerations that we have for long-term uh, non-use of that equipment? Um, well, when it comes to your sterilizers, I would suggest you pull out your um, instructions for use because you have the filters, you have your water quality, you have all of that stuff that you have to take into consideration. And if your uh, machines are sitting inactive, you have to, you know, that those filters didn't, um, you know, retain things because there's nothing that's been constantly flushing it. Um, so that's something to consider. I think what uh, Jenna had pointed out that Olympus had said where they have a shutdown and a startup process, many um, sterilizers might have the same information that you need to become familiar with. Right. So definitely reach out and look at the IFUs. Go ahead, Ann. Well, you've also got some of you have a sterad unit. So, yeah. I mean, we all have different equipment in our ASCs. But any equipment that's used directly for patient use um, and that it so severely affects infection control, you're going to have to pull out all of the specs and then, you know, the contingency plans. I mean, hopefully they've addressed them in their IFUs, but they never foresaw that we'd be shut down this long either. So if they don't have something in their IFUs, you need to contact them, like Lori said, and say, okay, we are shut down. We need guidance. Yeah. Yep. Good point. 
Thanks. And uh, we're going to talk about stare at in a few minutes. I just uh, threw something into the script there, guys, about we didn't talk about this before. Uh, well, moving on to N95s. Uh, well, first of all, are there any other questions, any other comments about equipment and bringing the equipment back up and running? Where's the script? <laughs> you don't have it, Laurie? I'll, I'll send it to her again. Oh, all right. <laughs> I don't even know oh, how she's talking. I mean, without like, and by the way, just for our audience out there, we have what we call a script, but it's really just about a bunch of bullet points. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't sound so uh, off the cuff or, or so disorganized, I guess. Uh, Speak for yourself. <laughs> so N95 masks, a uh, lot of issues about this. Uh, and this is, there's, well, anyway, Jenna, why don't you start the conversation? Yeah, so um, the GI Society, the the GI Society's put out a couple joint statements in the past week. Um, one was about their guidance as to um, what was considered a elective versus an urgent um, case. So if you haven't seen that already, I'm sure we have the link up on the website. Um, check that out. But they also put out guidance about um, the use of PPE during endoscopies. And um, they made a big deal about the fact that the entire endoscopy team should be wearing a full set of PPE. Um, as available, um, but if possible, wear a full set of PPE. Um, and then they also said that all members of the endoscopy team should wear N95 respirators or equivalent um, for GI procedures performed on patients with known COVID-19 and those with high risk of exposure. And they go on to specify that um, given the high rate of transmission um, from pre-symptomatic individuals, all patients undergoing GI endoscopy in an area of community spread need to be considered high risk. So we have a lot of centers in uh, our clients uh, in New York City and um, Long Island and Westchester counties, which are all definitely um, areas of uh, wide community spread. So um, we've been working with a lot of our clients this week trying to figure out um, among them uh, what their plan is in terms of um, protecting their staff. Um, you know, a lot of our GI centers have been uh, closed down the past couple of weeks, but a lot of them are trying to, you know, partly reopen, at least to do those urgent cases. Um, and uh, this kind of is a little, a little troublesome because most of our centers are not fit tested to wear N95 masks and an N95 mask without a fit test is uh, pretty useless. Can you talk a little bit about, for those organizations, I mean, I, I know most nurses have probably gone through fit testing in the past, but uh, many in the ASC uh, facilities just haven't, don't have to do it. Can you talk a little bit about the process and how to, how to, how to find somebody to do the fit testing for you? Yeah, so usually what they do is they put a, a big hood over your head, um, and then they have, you know, you're wearing the mask underneath before you, um, before you put the hood on, you make sure that, you know, it's sealed as much as possible. Um, they show you how to do a little seal check uh, before you, um, uh, be before they do you know, to make sure that it's uh, sealed on your face good. And then you put the hood on and then they have a couple like different sprays that they spray into the hood. And they have you do a number of different um, things like turn your head from side to side, smile, um, talk, uh, and then see if you can taste um, the, uh, it tends to the, be either a bitter one or a sweet taste yeah. thing. See if you can taste it when, 
Um, and then um, if you can't taste it, it means it fits and you're good to go. Um, and that should ideally be done on an annual basis. I think that there may be some loosening. I mean, it definitely needs to be done initially before they wear the N95 masks. I think I saw some um, guidance that there, there may be some loosening of the annual requirement right now from OSHA, um, but don't quote me on that. Uh, I was reading through that the other day. Um, but definitely the initial testing needs to be done. Um, and so a couple options that we've been looking into with my centers that have managed to get their hands on some N95 masks um, have been, I mean, you can buy the kits yourself, um, but uh, that's not necessarily the ideal situation either. Um, or you can send your your employees to a, you know, outsourced um, uh, occupational health facility. So a lot of the urgent cares um, offer those services. If you if you go online and check out the local um, urgent cares, um, they might especially if offer they have that. an employee then, health component. Especially yeah. if they have an employee health component. Yeah, and then um, the other thing when I was doing some research in the New York City area, at least, is a lot of the different um, places that offer the ACLS and BLS training also apparently do N95. Um, uh, fit testing so and then there's a couple places too that'll just come it's like a mobile fit test you know mobile occupational health or fit test um service and they'll come to your facility and do it for your employees so i don't know the cost of any of these things um but that was some of the things that um, um some of my gi centers in the city have been looking into this past week jenna on, I'm go, oh go ahead oh, sorry no go ahead I said, i'm gonna go on record um, to say, even before this whole thing started, I'm a very firm believer in everyone in the GI procedure room wearing appropriate PPE. Um, I think that we've come a long way from back when doctors would come in and the only thing they did was stick their ties inside their um, dress shirts and that was their getting ready for the procedure to now where they're uh, wearing scrubs and an overgown, et cetera. But there's still centers that don't have um, uh, head protection. Uh, not a lot. Not everybody wears masks. You know, it's it's very lax. And I'll tell you, when I go on to a survey or if I go in just to um, help out a center and see how they're doing things, I have to get myself a black light. That's all I'm going to say because they will probably all walk out of there and. and have a moment with vomiting yeah. um, because you can't, there's, there's so much that you don't see that we don't see yeah. that is aerosolized, especially during those procedures that um, you're wearing them home. You, you know, so I, I think if nothing else, please moving forward when we have, when we're all back up and running and we all have our appropriate um, supplies that we, we use, encourage your GI practitioners and your staff to wear the appropriate PPE. It is in their best interest. Right. Well said. Last week, uh, toward the end of the week, we got a, uh, some, we got a comment uh, and I'm sorry to use a brand name here, but, uh, Starrett came out and commented that the FDA had approved the reprocessing of N95s. Um, and I immediately sent an email out to all four of my nurses 
And all four of them came back and said uh, they didn't think that was appropriate. Uh, so uh, do those nurses wish to speak up and explain their reasoning on that? Well, I couldn't find where the FDA specifically approved the Sterad, number one. Um, and I did not, I could not find any validation on how you're cleaning your N95 mask prior to putting them in your sterad. Yeah. Because again, we cannot sterilize protein. We cannot sterilize DNA. So if there is any microscopic um, blood or, um, you know, uh, spit, whatever. I, I'm so, I'm so professional. Um, on your mask, you're, you're not cleaning it. You're putting it in your sterilizer and it's not being sterilized. So you're not real. So now you're putting up, uh, what you assume to be a clean mask and, and it's not, um, there was one company that they did. I did find the um, approval for, and I, I apologize. I can't think of it, but it sounds like a the type of company where you send your used masks to, to their corporate headquarters or their factory where they then process it and send them back. So that's not the same as Sterod saying they, that it, they've been approved. So if they, ha if they're listening and if you're out there, <laughs> please right. send the, the, the information that will make me eat crow. I have no problem with that. But if, if I can't find a validation, I'm not going to um, support the uh, practice. I agree with Lori. I think that I'd be much more comfortable with sending it off to be reprocessed by an outside vendor if they've been approved by the FDA. I, I, when, I, when you sent that out, John, I was yeah. cringing because for the same reasons that Lori <laughs> said that. I thought, what? You know, and, and I think that gives people a false sense of security that, you, oh, you yeah. can just you know, sterilize these things and we're good to go. We don't have to buy as many, but I, I haven't seen anything to prove that. I do want to uh, make a point along those same lines right now. I am on LinkedIn and through my email. I, I don't know that I've ever seen as many uh, reach outs from vendors on LinkedIn and through email about the latest and greatest new thing coming out. And, and uh, the president of, uh, or the, uh, uh, chief executive officer of a uh, management company uh, made a comment uh, uh, on one of the feeds in LinkedIn who said, listen, this is not the time for me to start experimenting with new things. He says, it takes us a long time to make a decision about any new product that we bring on board uh, anyway, let alone during a time like this when you know we just don't have the time to making, the, making those decisions. And uh, every five minutes, I'm getting somebody reaching out to me trying to sell a, a brand new product. Uh, and we're kind of picky about our, our sponsors, of course. Trust me, we've had to turn down a lot. Uh, just because I, I don't know anything about them, uh, they're new, uh, and and uh, until we we know that the, these are things that um, um, are going to be valuable to our, our our centers, we're certainly not going to be looking at experimenting right now. Any other thoughts on that? Again, I'm looking at Ann and and uh, uh, Lori. No, I, I agree with you, John. Mm -hmm. So do I. Okay, moving on. Um, so I did want to kind of mention some very hot topics in New York right now, uh, which I think has relevance for the rest of the country. So we listened to our, our governor um, 
this morning, and he was talking about how the the situation with regard to ventilators is starting to get desperate in the city. Uh, And he's uh, searching for every ventilator that he can get. He's buying as many as he can. He's begging the government, the the federal government, to uh, provide them to him, but he's still not getting the number that he thinks that he needs. So he went on record today as saying that he is going to start um, uh, requesting that uh, that hospitals, uh, in particular, or uh, other healthcare organizations that have ventilators, uh, offer them up. He'll, he'll pay for them, either rent them or buy them, uh, to uh, to the down in the city. And that if he doesn't get any cooperation, he did mention that he is uh, signing an executive order that gives him the authority uh, to basically uh, get them. Um, and that, that raised uh, uh, a lot of questions. Uh, I mean, the first question, uh, I unfortunately, I wasn't listening. Um, I, I was listening, but I, I, I'm not sure I heard the same thing. Uh, fortunately, Sue was listening too. And I, I, I heard it and I thought, oh, my goodness, they're coming after our anesthesia machines. And Sue pointed out that they never mentioned the name. You know, they never mentioned anesthesia machine. They never mentioned surgery centers at that point. But we are concerned overall that we're going to start uh, getting requests uh, from the government or from the state uh, to take our anesthesia machines. And uh, since that meeting, or since that um, uh, conversation, um, our emails have been going back and forth. We've had some people that have uh, pointed out that uh, the word got out that the state was coming and sending the National Guard to get their anesthesia machine, uh, which is not the case, by the way, to the best of our knowledge. So don't worry about an uh, armed guard showing up to take away your <laughs> anesthesia machine right now. They had uh, talked about them transporting. I think that's, that's right. That's right. <laughs> from if they needed – I mean, you can't just mail off uh, – machine. So. Yeah. And that's why I, I want to make sure that we clear that up right now because it, it really was getting out there right away. So no, the National Guard is not on the way to pick up your anesthesia machines. That being said, uh, there are a number of people have mentioned to me and even during the podcast here have mentioned that they are in negotiations or in conversation with the local hospital about about the potential of giving up some of their anesthesia machines, not all of them, uh, if they do continue to operate or wish to continue to operate. So at this point, and, and let's face it, as we've talked about a number of times on the podcast and certainly in our daily updates and on our website, an anesthesia machine is not an ideal ventilator. It's not a long-term solution. It's the type of thing that you use because every other option has been exhausted. Uh, and and you find that you you have no choice but to use something like that. Uh, so... Uh, so anyway, uh, something to keep an eye out. Uh, I don't know how much this has hit the other states right now, but your anesthesia machines might be uh, a, a point of contention uh, moving forward. Uh, and in New York, what they've done is uh, the government or the state has requested that we uh, provide uh, the state with a list of all the equipment that we have, including anesthesia machines and personnel for that matter, uh, in case they, uh, they need to call upon those resources. So, uh, Any other comments? about that. Okay. Uh, If you are in New York, please, uh, we have sent out a request. The State Association has sent out a request to fill out a form with uh, uh, information about what what resources you do have. There's a number of reasons for completing this. One is to see what equipment is out there and what staff is out there. But the second is just to be able to determine what, uh, from a state level, what they might be able to utilize your center for. So there's a real benefit to completing these. And I think you're going to see this rolled out in virtually every other state that has a major issue here. So be prepared for that. Maybe start gathering that information so you can fill that form out quickly. We've uh, provided a copy of the New York State form on our website at ASC Podcast com if you just want to see an example of what uh, what information might be asked of you 
question for you, John. Sure. Um, in regards to that, let's um, let's say that the uh, your local hospital does want your anesthesia machines, and you are very gracious, and you give them out. And the uh, the coronavirus is now under control, and we are going to go back to daily lives. There's still patients that are on those machines. Yeah. So something to consider is when does the ASC get their machines back and are they uh, refurbished, taken care of, replaced, yeah. et cetera. So that's something as an administrator um, or a clinical per clinical director, you might want to consider that if, if you lend it, you, you might want to put a stipulation that you get yours back first you know, as opposed to them continuing using it and their, then their anesthesia machines are used in their, in their ORs. I don't know. I, that, that's just something that I'm thinking about out loud. Well, and, and an that's anesthesia a good point. Yeah. An anesthesia machine isn't meant to be used 24 seven for an extended period of time. So the, the, it's going to have an impact. It must have an impact on its longevity also. Probably. But until you get it back, you can't do cases. Right. So if That's they drag their feet because they're overwhelmed with the COVID virus, then all of a sudden your machines, your four anesthesia machines are sitting in their hospital, maybe not used on a patient, but they're too busy to get them refer, get them cleaned up and right. get them. And you have to describe the condition you expect to get them back in. Right. I mean, they need to be in pristine condition and then you have to have them PM'd and checked right. out by the manufacturer. So you can't do cases with those until all that has happened. Yeah, you're not going to be able to bring that that uh, that back right away. Good point. Thank you. So we know with the uh, the the Paycheck Protection Program that you're going to be required if you go through the program and get the uh, uh, the funding, which is as we mentioned earlier, uh, is uh, can be uh, uh, abated, or you'll uh, you you won't have to pay the loan back for a certain portion, about uh, two months worth of uh, of wages that your employees are going to be back on your payroll. The question now is, what are you going to do with them, especially if you're not operating? If you're operating, that's another matter. But even uh, even those centers that are uh, operating are not uh, at full tilt right now, most likely, because they're only doing non-elective, or uh, right, non-elective cases. So we've talked quite a bit, and we've had some resources on the website uh, related to what you should be doing during this uh, time uh, of uh, low volume or no volume or, or period of time, like in New York, uh, most of our employees are not even on site. They're working from home at this point because they're non. They're, at that point, they're not essential because they're not actually working. So we've thought quite a bit about this over time. We've put a lot of resources up there. There's things that you can be doing. You know, if you're on site, you can clean uh, the facility, get it you know really uh, sparkling clean. Uh, get caught up on all of your paperwork. Time to write all those minutes. Uh, if you're not having us write them for you, that is one of the things we do for our clients. Uh, getting your policy manual up to date. Uh, how many policy manuals out there? I'm going to look at my other two surveyors on the call. Right. I mean, a couple of the surveys I've done recently, the uh, 
uh, the, the there was dust and they were yellowed uh, in the uh, the policy manual. So uh, any everybody's policy manual could probably uh, use a good go, uh, once over. And of course, there's things that, as we've mentioned, uh, that really should be revised in those policy manuals. A lot of changes that have occurred over the last three years, and a lot of changes that occurred as a result of the the pandemic here. So use that time wisely. Start thinking about things that you can have your staff assigned to do. Spend some time going through the accreditation handbook again. Um, last two surveys I've done, uh, the the staff didn't even know there was an accreditation handbook, let alone uh, spending time looking at it. So um, it's one thing for the administrator and the nurse manager and the business office manager to read through that manual, but it's another thing to have all your staff really intimately involved in it and knowledgeable about what's going on. Checking through all of your equipment. Uh, obviously, keeping up with all the equipment maintenance and the, um, you know, the checks and, and spreading that knowledge. Excuse me. <coughs> Spreading the knowledge, good time to start cross-training people. Uh, it's always good to have a couple extra, you know, people that can do um, the, uh, uh, you know, the, the the monthly checks, the the emergency uh, light checks, the uh, the daily checks. Uh, you know, train more people to do uh, hand hygiene surveillance for you, uh, for example, or uh, you know, t- spend the time, uh, um, you know, cross-training people between the pre-op and the post-op area. Another, or uh, I'm sorry, pre-op and post-op and intra-op or um, operating rooms, uh, if that's feasible. I think one of our biggest opportunities during this time, though, is to uh, get caught up on our annual mandatory education. Let's get all of that done now because you're going to be running full tilt when everything comes back to normal, uh, if there is such a thing. Uh, so get your mandatory education programs in right now. Uh, and also, a lot of our national conferences, our state conferences have been canceled. The ASCA conference has been postponed indefinitely. We don't know when they're going to be able to come back. Uh, the ARN concert, conference for the year was canceled, and that, that is a huge uh, conference, as, uh, as Ann Geyer, who's uh, very much involved in it, will attest to. That, that, uh, that's a major educational opportunity for, uh, for nurses or operating room nurses during the year. So uh, to that end, uh, you know, try to avail yourself of uh, whatever uh, opportunities are out there. And uh, we at the ASC podcast with John Gale and Ambitory Healthcare Strategies have decided to step up on that in that front. So a couple things we're going to be doing is uh, we're going to be helping all of our clients uh, and uh, anybody else that uh, would would be interested in, uh, in this uh, to offer up some uh, virtual conferencing. So there's two parts to this. I'm going to have Judy chime in. She's our Director of Educational Services. So there's two parts of it. There's the general education, which is the, the stuff that you, you, you don't have to be specific to your center. So when you're doing annual mandatory education, it's important to note that there's two parts to it. <clears throat> there's the stuff that you can educate people on, that, uh, such as OSHA, and HIPAA that's not specific to the surgery center. And then there's the stuff that is specific, such as your quality improvement plan, your infection control plan. Uh, so Judy, why don't you just kind of briefly go through, let's start with the general stuff. So what, uh, why don't you go through the general stuff first? Well, for those that are listening that have been through um, a mandatory education program with me, it's broken up into three sections. So the first section is all the things that either CMS or, or C or, or um, Commission. The powers that be um, have decided that you need to learn every year. Your HIPAA, your um, operating room safety, um, and those things are the same regardless of where you work. That section doesn't really change much um, unless whether or not you off fluoroscopy, so then radiation safety comes in or out, whether you have a laser that comes in or out. But the rest of it is the same every year since we've all worked in healthcare 
since the beginning of time. So that doesn't change very much. And we have those available um, recorded, or I can do it on the Zoom like this if you need it done. And that section's pretty robust. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a good little bit of information. But once we get through that, the way AHS is set up, the way John's always set this up, is that then it becomes very specific to you and your center and your people. So we look at the plans that were written specific for your center, your quality improvement plan, your infection control plan, your emergency plan. Um, and it's very specific to you. Then we get even more nitty gritty and go into your policies and we look at your actual written, I don't know, disruptive behavior policy and your advanced directive policy. So those are harder to do in a generic sense and just send out, um, but very easy to do on a Zoom conference like this. I've done the last couple of weeks, I've done more than I've ever done before. Um, and I find, although, you know, it's not exactly the same as having a room full of people interacting and asking questions. It really is the next best thing and certainly the safest thing um, at this point. So this and is... Even, I went on a rant. Did I even you did. answer uh, the question? Yeah. Uh, that's why we have scripts, by the way. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but those, of us, the, those of us that do improv, <laughs> it doesn't work for us, doesn't it? I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> no, sorry. it's all right. No, it's all right. So, so let's just uh, go back and talk. Uh, let's first talk about uh, the general ed education because those are things that we can push out to everybody, uh, whether you're a client or not a client. Uh, so we're going to start with that, actually. We're going to try to put together a session that Judy will host live. Maybe we'll do it more than once. I, we haven't figured out how we're going to do this yet. Uh, but it will. we will decide within the next couple of days on this. And what we'll push out to all of our clients and our podcast listeners here, too, is the uh, ability to uh, tune in live um, to uh, a Zoom session. Uh, where you can uh, have all of your employees sit in front of a television or join from their home if they're at home right now and be able to knock off all of those, uh, those, uh, um, those mandatory education things that are, are generic, that are not specific to the organization. And if you're a client, of course, we won't charge for it because that's part of the services we provide anyway. Uh, if you're not a client, we'll, we'll charge a nominal fee to, uh, uh, to be able to avail yourself of that. And uh, we'll, we'll try to make everything very reasonable here. Uh, and, and then this is something that's going to be recorded and you'll be able to use in the future. So if you think about it, this could really end up being a very nice addition to your education program. And really, as surveyors, I think uh, Lori and uh, Ann will say, if they know, if you could actually pull up on your screen an example of the education program that you're providing to your, your employees, I think that's, uh, that's even better than that binder that we provide. Though, you know, with the education program will be a, you know, a complete list of all the slides, et cetera, that are available. So that's something we'll be pushing out very shortly. Uh, for our clients um, and anybody that might want to become a client, um, we're, we're also going to be doing the more specific education for, for them. Again, the same thing. It'll be, except that'll be a private, you know, Zoom session where uh, it's very directly with the employees, very specifically oriented toward their education program, to, uh, I'm sorry, to their uh, quality improvement program, to their transfer policy, their infection control program, et cetera. Uh, and again, demonstrating the, the two sides of, uh, of an education program. I do want to mention, and we've mentioned this in a couple of our, our uh, podcasts uh, before, uh, before we went started doing live, is the importance of understanding that there's on, these online um, organizations that can provide your education. Um, they cannot cover all of those aspects of education that you need. 
In other words, if all you're doing is using uh, one of those services to do your annual mandatory education, you are missing a very big component. And again, Laurie and Ann will probably attest to this. You, you cannot get uh, one of those organizations to give you an education on what your transfer policy is or your emergency preparedness program or your fire policy and where your fire extinguishers are unless you go into that system and modify it. So that's what's different from what you know we do um, is that we tailor that education specifically to your organization. So very important that you just don't, if you are using one of those services, I'm hoping that that's not the only education that you're providing to people. Any other Don, are you going to try to offer AEUs for these and and ICPH if needed? IPCH. Yes. Um, uh, if it applies. IPC, the IPCUs. Oh, I'm looking at Anne because we're both on the board, and I can't even remember. Are they called IPCUs or IPCHs? I thought it was IPCH, Infection Prevention Contact Hours. Okay. But I could be wrong. Uh, by the way, we just got approved for 5.75 for Lori's session. We'll be talking about in a, se- a second. Uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, so the answer, Anne, is yes. We will apply for the general education section uh, for Yes, that's what I was talking the, about. Yeah, for the AEU. Uh, another question, if they are going to listen, if they can't be on the general sessions when, we, when they're broadcast live, will they still be able to get AEUs? If they listen to the recorded session, yes, uh, and that that's uh, a big deal. Yeah, and, and let me point that out. We're going to talk in a few minutes about our upcoming conferences. Uh, all of our conferences are going to be recorded. We do have a mechanism for awarding AEUs afterwards. It will require okay. you to take a test. That's though. a huge help. Yeah. So you're going to have to answer a test. But all of our education programs, uh, even if they're not on Zoom, uh, we do require our um, uh, the employees to answer some. You know, they're not complicated questions. Uh, Judy doesn't tend to be uh, very uh, uh, tricky there like us college professors who like to find ways. Or, or, or as Ann and I will attest to, the, uh, the, uh, the CASC exam uh, tends to have some more difficult questions here. That's not what we're trying to do with this. We just want to make sure that you actually, you know, read through it and, and picked up some basic information. But, Ann, that's a very good point is as much as possible, you know, we're going to be trying to give credits away. One of the – I think that we're going to find ourselves in a situation this year where it's going to be difficult from, for CAS, for some CAS people and for some CAPE people to get their credit hours uh, in. Uh, we're going to do anything possible. You know, the podcast itself, if you listen to the podcast, you are uh, able to get uh, AEU credits for listening to us as long as you take a test. And you know, there's a whole process there, which we'll talk about in some other episode. Uh, a couple uh, months ago, I ran into a surveyor who uh, no longer uh, works for a big company uh, who pays her bill to go to uh, to the, uh, the ASCA conference. And she said, I just can't afford to do that. So is there any other way that we can get uh, AEU credits. Uh, and I said, yeah, I think I got an idea. And that's when we started thinking about how we we're going to do it with the podcast and now with our virtual conference, which we'll talk about in a, in a second. Actually, I think that's what we're doing. Um, with the conferences, do, are there also CEUs for nurses, not just the specific CASC and um, CAPE? Yes, thank you for bringing that up. Um, it's a bit of a sore subject right now because I have not been able to find a source or an ability to to do those, and especially with the short time frame that we had. We wanted, we we cannot predict when people are going to be going back to work, so we felt that we needed to get these conferences out pretty quickly. I did reach out to some organizations that I've worked with in the past that I thought might be able to help, and they said two things. First of all, no. Um, you're not a, uh, a uh, you're not a state association, which is usually what does this sort of thing, uh, or a national association. 
Um, and uh, two, I, we just don't have any time, you know, enough time to pull it together. Uh, I have not given up on it completely. I will figure this out uh, in some way in the future, but... Uh, uh, but I, I, CEUs are not as easy to get as people might think. Yeah. And I think that some of the national... I mean, almost every meeting that I've done online has been approved by the California Board of Nursing. Right. And, you know, it's like, but then you can't get a hold of them. Right. I mean, it's almost impossible to get a hold of them. That's actually what we reached out to, and that's where we were having some problems. So, uh, Oh, I'm telling you, it's yeah. tough. I did it for um, when I was with SourceMed for a conference, and it took me weeks and weeks, yeah. and I, I swore I'd never do it again. Yeah, we just don't have the time right now to dedicate to all that. With yeah. mean, we're really rushing to to get these conferences together. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, the conferences. So our first uh, and very exciting conference is next Tuesday. It's coming up, Lori. Uh, <laughs> infection prevention training, April seventh. It's filling up fast. Lori and I will be uh, hosting this on Tuesday, April seventh, from eight to about three o'clock. Um, the uh, so if you're an ASC uh, infection control nurse or interested in infection control or ever thought about becoming an infection control nurse, an administrator wants to know what your infection control nurse does, uh, or actually we've had administrators who just want to know you know, a little bit more about infection control, uh, to reach out to me. And it, we're not putting any limits on, on who can attend this. So if you want to demonstrate, so the other thing we know is that if you are an infection control coordinator in your organization, in order to prove to surveyors like Anne and Lori and myself that you have competence in infection control oversight, you're going to have to demonstrate that you've say, taken some type of a course. And there's some options out there, but most of them actually involve uh, you know, going to a conference or or going you know online uh, to to take an online course. What we're offering here is a, a live uh, interactive session that'll go, as I said, from eight to three, uh, with Lori uh, doing. There's four different sections to it, um, and it, so we're calling it a virtual conference. Um, attendees will receive a certificate of attendance and various resources that we use within our company and that we uh, push out to all of our clients. Uh, which we find have been very useful in the past, and surveyors find them very useful. Um, uh, and you're uh, you're also going to have an opportunity to interact with the hosts and with each other to a certain degree. Uh, it's a live format that allows you to ask questions. Uh, so for more information, go to the ASC podcast website and just follow the links there for the ASC Infection Prevention Coordinator Training. If you are a paid retainer client of the Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, you can sign up for one person at no charge. Uh, and I should point out that if there are more than one people person in the room, obviously that that's fine. Uh, but if you do require more than one uh, uh, session, we, we'll have to uh, charge because we have to pay for those. For more information, contact your HS contact or myself if you wish to sign up uh, as a client. Laura, do you want to talk a little bit about some of the things you're going to uh, discuss? I know uh, you sent me an email just before we went live saying that you actually finished your slides uh, for the second time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I kind of messed up the first time. But um, the first thing I want to remind everybody is that if you have an infection control consultant, that's wonderful. That's a, a great source of um, information and to help you oversee your, um, your program. However, as an ASC, you need to have someone on site that is your infection control preventionist or your infection control nurse or coordinator, whatever you want, the title you want to use. Um, pretty much what, uh, if anyone's familiar at all with the uh, CMS infection control worksheet, they want to know how much time yeah. that person is spending 
every week on infection prevention. So if you have a consultant that comes quarterly or whatever, your answer is uh, 15 minutes. Yeah. So that's not going to go over well, and you're going to have an issue with your survey. But because you need someone there live, you need someone there that's watching out. It's not a bad idea to even have a backup infection person or knowledgeable person when when your um, primary person isn't there, and that could be your nurse manager or whomever. But you know, it's just something to consider. But we're gonna we're gonna kind of talk about oh my goodness, we're gonna talk about the infection preventionist and what their role is and what the expectations are of them and and um, you know exactly what it is that they do and what they should do. Um, so that's where if you're the administrator, it's good to be there because then you need to know what needs to be included in that person's um, job description and, and what you're, you can set your expectations of that um, employee. We're also going to talk about um, sending up an effective um, infection control program, you know, how to go about it, what things to consider to have in your program, um, and also, you know, how often you need to revisit it. Um, we'll, we'll talk about the infection control risk assessment and performing a risk assessment. And it's like, which came yeah. first, the chicken or the egg? Because your program and your risk assessment kind of go hand in hand because, you know, you use one to create the other. Um, and it, so it, it's, they, they kind of go together, but it's, it's a different process. And then we're going to end up with, um, Performing an infection um, investigation and steps you should do and how how you get your information regarding infections and and um, you know buy in by your doctors and and then you know you know ways to go about um, performing um, the investigation should you unfortunately have uh, have one reported to you and and again um, it's it's also um, it doesn't have to be a confirmed in infection. If they suspect it, you need to look into right. it. So that's that's where we're going to start on um, Tuesday. And I think it's fair to say that, I mean, after the 2008 incidents and and the implementation of the new infection control guidelines, that was a that was a big uh, change for our industry. I think we're going through another major one right now as we consider. Uh, now we're we're not even talking about surgical site infections now, uh, and and that's one of my concerns is that sometimes we we're so focused on protecting our employees and our patients from uh, the virus that we're forgetting that the main reason that we have an infection control program here, or one of the main reasons, but the one we usually think about is to to, to avoid surgical site infections. Uh, so yeah. never has it been more important. I think it's it's not too uh, uh, grandiose to state that. Yeah, and I mean, I think right now, um, as we've seen, um, as surveyors, they're sending us out for infection issues. Yeah. They're sending us out to um, centers that had had issues with their survey that was related with infection control. Right. Um, state surveyors are doing that as well. That's not going to stop when we reopen. I think it's going to become a little bit more, um, you, you know, you guys think I'm picky now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, and I, I can see it happening. I, I really can. You know, once they all get up and running, that's going to be their main focus. They're going to come in and say, oh, great, good. You have a governing board. Woo. Okay, let's look at your infections. Right. Let's look at your processes. Let's look at that. You know, because I, I, I really think it's going to come down to that because we don't want to get caught again with uh, an issue such as this. Who right. would have ever thought it? Right. You know, Absolutely. we we had we had that 
you know, unfortunately, that horrible outbreak of the measles um, in Brooklyn, what, a year and a half ago? Um, we have to be ready now across the country. It's not just an isolation, this COVID-19, that it's going to ramp up again once we get through this portion. And we have to be uh, on alert and be ready to handle it should it occur and you know so it's there's a lot that's going to go into this and and that infection control coordinator is suddenly going to be become one of the most important persons uh on the uh that, that's going to be interviewed during the survey yeah a lot absolutely. of pressure is going to be put on them absolutely very good. Um, before I go on to our next point, um, a lot's been going on on the various feeds we've had. Holly Wilson <laughs> gave us a lot of information um, about the FDA. Unfortunately, I have been coordinating things. Can somebody speak to all this stuff? Who's I best able to? I think we're just going to look into it a little bit more. She, she had um, given us an idea for searching on the FDA website, what to look up, and I found a PDF and yeah. some other information. It does look like they're approving certain um, reprocessing with Battelle, um, but it kind of looks like the risk outweighs the benefits sort of thing, so I, I do want us to look a little bit more into that, but just I want people to know that that there there is a possibility and, and so here's what here's what I suggest we do then I'm looking at all Monday, all four we'll, of my nurses here yeah. uh, and that includes you Ann uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna be busy over the weekend we'll push out all this information uh, Holly gave us a lot of information we've gotten some other information um, I, I think what happened is uh, Laura you put a challenge out there <laughs> and, <Hey>. people, <laughs> and people stepped up the tell was the one that we actually sent out about in our yeah. daily update a couple mm -hmm. days ago okay. that's I, what I thought. I think yeah, we yeah. just have to be much more clear about our information. We'll put something together uh, over uh, the weekend and on our morning update. Mm -hmm. um, and for those of you that are li uh, podcast listeners that are not clients of ours, we do send a, a morning update to all of our clients. We do post that. There's no charge for it on our on the ASC podcast website. Just follow the link for the uh, the morning update, and you can read all the updates since we, this whole crisis began. So there was already some information on it. Yeah, yeah. there's information that we posted today yeah. in today's update. Right, I, I'm lost track of time. Uh, no, I it, believe it was yesterday. It, it was yesterday. I'm sorry. It was on. It was a couple days ago. Okay, yeah. sorry about that. Uh, so a couple days ago, maybe yesterday, maybe the day before. Uh, do go back and read that at least because that information remains the same, and we'll come back with some more specific information on on this whole issue. Um, any other comments? Any other questions that I haven't caught? We do have one more item we want to talk about. So uh, what I am really excited about is uh, we have uh, decided to do a two-day uh, national conference online. It's a virtual conference, so you'll be joining us, um, you know, through a, a, a Zoom webinar session. I, I don't want to use the term webinar. You'll see that we purposely don't use it, but that is the software that we're using to push this out. And we'll be using the Zoom platform for those of you that are familiar with it. And we're calling it, it's a New World Conference 2020. Thank you, Judy, for coming up with the idea. We all uh, chipped uh, ideas in, and uh, that was the one we liked the most. Uh, so it's a New World Conference 2020, and it's uh, a conference for ambulatory surgery centers. And 
So as you bring your employees back onto your payroll to meet the provisions of the Paycheck Protection Program or experience downtime, we want you to use this time to improve your skills and to learn some new things. So this two-day virtual conference will be held on April 14th and 17th. We decided not to put them on two consecutive days just to be able to give you a breather in between. It's an advantage that you don't have when you go to a national conference. So think about it this way. We're going to be providing up to 14 hours of educational content uh, somewhere hopefully up to 14 hours of AEU credits. I think we might end up with one or two uh, IPCU credits for infection control. But again, remember, Lori's going to be providing uh, 5.75 as part of her, her session there uh, in addition to this. So it's a two-day conference. We have a whole bunch of speakers that are lined up already. These are national speakers. Uh, all of them have a lot of experience in this area. Uh, Ann Geyer over in the uh, – she's in the corner and. Or, Looking at where she is on the screen here, uh, Anne is our keynote uh, on uh, Tuesday. Uh, I'm sure she's going to have a, a fantastic uh, conversation, very enlightening. And we're going to end so that she's going to start the conference off, and we're going to end with a panel discussion about leadership in the in the new in the new world. In other words, what happens uh, after we're done with this? I, I I just can't wait for this opportunity. It is not going to be a webinar. It's going to be an interactive uh, opportunity. Uh, we've already uh, trying to come up with some exciting ways of doing things. We'll try to give away some Amazon gift certificates and trivia or whatever. Um, we have decided to send the puppy on a worldwide tour. So she's we're throwing her on an airplane, and she's going to be traveling all over the world. Um, okay, in front of a green screen. But anyway, she's uh, she's going to be visiting and uh, and showing up every once in a while just so that you can see our our wonderful puppy in front of a different types of scenes. I just. When in doubt, just throw a puppy into the scene, and I think people will pay attention. But we want and John, this to... one advantage to doing these these Zoom telecasts. We were talking about this before the podcast was that a lot of us find great comfort in our pets, as you know. Yes. And we'll be on these calls, and our pets will wander up, and we find <laughs> ourselves picking the pets up. And you get the best reactions just by seeing the faces of the people that are on the podcast at what a pet can do to calm yes. your nerves in this very um, tense situation. Well, well said. Uh, as, and anybody that watched, what was it, Tuesday's episode where uh, Judy uh, left the scene <laughs> for a while and she didn't know that her cat had snuck in and wandered in front of the uh, the screen while while poor Nelson was talking. All of a sudden, we started laughing, and the poor guy thought we were laughing at him. <laughs> and we said, "You've just been upstaged by a cat." So uh, I think we're going to have a uh, a little contest for the best um, pictures from uh, from the coronavirus uh, uh, isolation here. So you can do put your family members in there, your pets in there, whatever whatever you you have. Uh, we'll have a little bit of a contest there. So and we'll throw pictures on the screen every once in a while. We do have sponsors too who will uh, hopefully be giving us some uh, doing some giveaways, maybe uh, trying to recreate as much as possible. Uh, without actually being at a, a national conference or a state conference, that, that thing. So we're all brainstorming some ideas to make it more interesting. I think it'll be a, a very exciting uh, opportunity. If you're a retainer client of Ambitory Healthcare Strategies, you will get a full rebate for up to five attendees on your June 2020 retainer bill. So uh, note that one site using one computer to connect is one attendee. So if you have all of your staff uh, in your center, 
Um, they, uh, you can sign up for one attendee, uh, and then just hopefully not have a very small computer there. Hopefully you can broadcast on a big screen. Uh, and I think you're going to learn an awful lot. So go to our website, ASCPodcast.com for more information to sign up. Um, Be sure to socially distance your employees. That's correct. (laughs) (laughs) I should point that out. Um, and with that, do we have any questions out there? I've lost track of the chat here, so. Yeah, no, nothing there. Okay. Boy, we come to the end of our 100th episode, Sue. It's amazing. 100 episodes, two and a half years. Thank you for our wonderful audience, for the loyalty. Thank you to all of my uh, wonderful people on the on today's uh, podcast, and Alex, who uh is taking care of uh, my mother and his grandmother. Uh, Alex and I, by the way, are, uh, he's my uh, nephew, just to kind of point out <laughs> the family connections here. That's how it works. Um, and uh, I just, I'm kind of getting teary-eyed here. It's just such a such an exciting thing that we think that we've been doing here, and I want to thank everybody for, uh, for all of their time. With that, I hope you have a good weekend. Uh, try not to think about the coronavirus for at least part of it. Uh, if you have a dog or a, like we have a, eight-week-old puppy, go and hug them, and have a good time. So with that, we're signing off. Bye. 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 Oh, hang on. I'm sorry. <laughs> we got I some legal things we have to do. Stuff. I was saying, wait a minute. Oh, boy. Okay. You know, 100 episodes. You're getting old, man. I know. <laughs> Oh, where is it? Well, that's it for this episode of the SC Podcast with John Gailey. Join us again, and please consider becoming a patron by going to our website at ASCPodcast.com and spread the word about the podcast with your friends and colleagues, and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button, and and please consider becoming a patron. That does help keep the lights on in this wonderful studio here. The sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by Susan Cronkite. Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Calaritis, Lori Rodericks, and Ann Geyer. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah. The ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted by Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. We would like to thank our sponsors, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, Surgical Information System, Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions, BHG Funding, and Medicus IT. For more information about our sponsors, please visit our website. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.